Hey, everybody. How's everybody doing tonight? Great. Yes, that enthusiastic, huh? Wonderful. <laughs> well, it's good to be uh, back with you again. Uh, in case you haven't been here, uh, well, we're going through a series on emotions. And that, that's technically true whether you've been here or not. You just weren't here for it. So um, it's not a conditional reality. We, we've, been, we've been here talking about this, uh, talking about emotions. Last week we talked about, uh, we started out by talking about God and his emotions and how that relates to us as his image bearers. He's an emotional God. He's not a far off, distant, cold deity out there who doesn't intimately care about his people. And he has made us in his image. And what that means is that we are, we are designed to be intimately connected to each other on an emotional level. Emotions and this emotionality that he's put into us is designed to uh, communicate to us about the deepest loves of our hearts. I talked about how it's like a check engine light in your car. You don't just put a piece of tape over it. You, you know, the proper way to handle your emotions isn't to stuff them and cover them up. Nor is it to just uh, let them rule you and run your life. Uh, but the proper way to handle our emotions is to reflect on them, to pour them out in prayer before the Lord, and to experience them before the Lord. Emotions are like a summons from God to come into His presence. Just like the check engine light on your car is a summons to come into the presence of a mechanic and let him hook it up to the computer and tell you what's really wrong with, with what's going on underneath the hood. And then we talked about uh, the first emotion that we talked about was happiness. We talked about that last week. We talked about how God is the happy God because happiness as an emotion is the emotional response to, because emotions are responses to things outside of us. We make an, we make a estimation. We think about what this thing outside of us is and we have an emotional response to it. And happiness is the emotional response we have to the satisfaction of our needs. When a need that we have, we're needy beings, we're created that way, it's, it's, a, it's a feature, not a flaw, it's not a bug. You're made to be needy, and that's good. But happiness is the emotional reaction that we have when those needs are being met. And God is the happy God, because what does God, what's the one thing God does not have? Needs. <laughs> I mean, you could probably make, that's uh, one of the great things that he, he doesn't have. You could probably make a case that he doesn't have other things too. But he doesn't have needs. So he is always completely satisfied. He doesn't, he doesn't need you, but he desires to have you connected to him and participating in his life so that he can meet your needs. That's, he is deeply concerned with pouring himself out to you and giving you his own life and, call, and meeting all your needs at the deepest levels. So he wants you to be happy. God wants you to be happy. Now, that can probably be horribly interpreted, right? I've got to put up some fences around that statement. It's absolutely 100% true. God wants you to be happy. But he does not. But we need to define where we're actually going to find happiness. We, he wants you to pursue happiness. He wants you to chase after it. 
But there's only really one place where you're going to find ultimate, real, deep satisfaction of the needs that, you, that he's created you with. Because every one of those needs was made to be met ultimately by him. And so I want to read, we're going to do Psalm, we're going to talk about Psalm 1. I'm going to read that for us, and then we're going to dive in talking about the pursuit of happiness. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. So, we see a couple of things here. One... You might be asking, well, if this is about happiness, where's the word happiness? Where's the word? The word happy does not even appear in this passage. Why in the world are you talking about it? Well, I would contend with you that it does. I would contend with you that it is the very first word in the passage. And we talked a little bit about this last week for the New Testament. There's a Greek word uh, for the nerds in the audience. It's makarios. Uh, and it means happy. It means happiness. It, mean, it, it, is, it means exactly how we've defined it, that uh, emotional reaction to the satisfaction of our needs. And there's an Old Testament equivalent to it in the Hebrew, and it's ashrei, in case you want to know. Ashrei, and that's the very first word here. Happy is the man. Here's the promise of this book. Not to, This is the opening psalm to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is the biggest book in your Bible. It's right in the middle. It's a very important book. Jesus quoted it more than any other book of the Bible. It's the most quoted book in the New Testament. It is profoundly important. And what's the very first word in that book? Happy. You want to know where to find happiness? You want to know where to look for happiness? You want to know how to pursue happiness? I'm about to tell you. That is the point of this book. That is the, and you can argue that that is the point of the Bible. is to tell you where you can actually find happiness. So happy is the man. Here is the way to happiness. Uh, this is not the only book that makes this claim. Everything in There are people all around you. We walk through a world where you are hearing voices all the time. You turn on the TV, you open social media, you look at anything, news or anything else, uh, entertainment, and you are getting this promise. You're getting this advertisement. Look here and you'll find happiness. This is where you're going to find happiness. Find happiness in your sexuality. Find happiness in your money. Find happiness in your career. Find happiness here or there and everywhere. A little Susian rhyme there. Uh, the world is promising you where you can find happiness. So here's, it's as happy as the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So this wicked counsel, that's, that's, that is what everyone else is offering. This wicked counsel. There are voices offering you a path to happiness. 
but they're lying to you. The Bible is saying to you here that listening to that counsel is not the way to happiness. They're actually trying to divert you from your true happiness when you're trying to find happiness in other things. And so the, there are three things in this passage uh, that I, would, I, I, I call them killjoys. Three things that will destroy your happiness. And there's this progress, right? We see this progress in verse 1. Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There's this progress between these three things. See, you start listening to the counsel of the wicked. You start to hear their counsel and you start to say, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And so you're stopping and you're listening and you're hearing it. And it's, it's, it sounds really compelling. They make a compelling argument that I'll find happiness here in, uh, in, in sex outside of marriage or getting drunk or, you know, abusing alcohol or drugs or, you know, all the things that they warned you about in youth group. All the, you know, all those things. They're, they're promising you happiness. And we stop and we listen. And then we, after stopping and listening, and we're going, hey, that sounds pretty good. It progresses. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who refuses to walk in a place where he hears that counsel. But if you do, you stop and listen. What happens next? Nor stands in the way of sinners. So you're listening to wicked counsel. You're walking along your way. And now you're going to take your stand. Do you see the movement? You were walking before. You're passing on by. And now you've heard something that sounds really promising. Yes, I want Yes, I think happiness can be found here. So you stop and you stand and you listen. And now taking your stand isn't just about stopping and listening. It's about joining. It's about participating. It's about jumping in and beginning to behave according to this council. You're throwing your lot in. I stand with this group. This is where I stand. And then the third part of the progression is... It's not just that you listen to wicked counsel. It's not that you now take your stand and you identify with this particular group and you begin to behave like them, but then you sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, what's a scoffer? Any ideas? This is one, that's one of those good Bible words. Yeah. A mocker. I, I like. I translated it once when I was translating this passage as cynic, like somebody who's just really. You know these people. Everything is to be critiqued. You know, it's they question their their, their questions until they see through everything. Everything is a lie. Everything is is uh, is a trap. Everything is a conspiracy. These people. Everything. Why do you go to church? You go to church. You participate in the church. You're part. You're a Christian because you fell for it. Because you're a rube. You're just an idiot. Uh, when I was in Philadelphia, I, uh, I found that people were really rude in the north. One reason I couldn't wait to get back to the south. Um, but I found that if I dialed up my southern accent when I went to the grocery store, like if I just cranked it up to 11 and I was like, hey, how y'all doing? Hey, can I get some, can I get some help over here? Somebody show me where the grapes are at. And uh, if I did that, then people would stop and go, oh, oh, poor. I didn't realize you were an idiot. Let me let me slow down. And uh, that, I felt like that was the kind of attitude. I mean, it got me better service. So I really banked on it. 
Um, see, who was the real idiot there? Um, but there's this, this, that attitude of, oh, this poor idiot. I can't, oh, poor baby. I can't believe he believes this stupid thing. That a man 2,000 years ago rose from the dead. Oh, this poor idiot. A mocker is somebody who feels sorry for you as a Christian because you're just, you're just, you've just fooled. You've got the wool pulled over your eyes. You're being deceived and is cynical about all things sincere and religious. Whatever is good and true and noble and beautiful and worthy and worthy of, and, and, and of good report. All of these things, it's all a bunch of bunk. There's nothing like that. And there's a pathway that you start on. You start out, uh, you might start out happy, but you begin to listen to this wicked counsel, you take your stand, and then before you know it, you are sitting with the mockers. You've taken your seat. To take your, to take your seat is not just to behave like the wicked, but now you belong to the, to the wicked. You belong among them. You found your home. To sit in the seat in the ancient world uh, meant that if you sat in the gate, you sat down in the gate, it meant you were like a city official. You were an elected official. You had a, you had a, you had a voice in the city. And this idea, this idea of taking your seat among the scoffers is, it's like when you see Lot in the book of Genesis, after he and Abraham divide and Lot takes, goes down to Sodom, and the next time we see Lot, what's he doing? He's sitting in the gate. And we should be alarmed by that. He's not just listened to wicked counsel. He looked out over the valley and he knew that he knew the reputation of the cities down in that valley. But the city, but he looks at the valley and it's green, like the Garden of God, he says. This area is like the Garden of God. It's like the Garden of Eden. Things are just trees. You just walk through and trees just drop food into your hand. It's like, you guys ever seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You guys know that? Or is, or is that just like too old a reference? There's this song in that movie. It's called The Big Rock Candy Mountain. Uh, on the Big Rock Candy Mountain, all the, all the bulls, all the, uh, all the railroad bulls are blind. All the dogs have rubber teeth and the chickens lay hard-boiled eggs. You know, it's like they picture this world where the Big Rock Candy Mountain, there's rivers of stew and lakes of whiskey and cigarette trees. To a, to a train-traveling hobo, it is, it is the ideal world. It, you, couldn't find, you couldn't be any happier than living on the Big Rock Candy Mountain. It's everything you could imagine. All the jails are made of tin, and you, as soon as you go in, you can walk right back out again. Well, this idea, Lot, Lot looks out over... The, over the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah is, and he goes, that's the Big Rock Candy Mountain, baby. That's where I want to be. That's got every, it'll meet every one of my needs. I will be completely satisfied if I go down here and live. And so he listens. He believes that kind of counsel that's going on, and he goes, he walks down, walks in the counsel of the wicked, gets down in there, and then we find him not just, we find him behaving. When we see Lot's behavior, what do we see? This is a man from the people of God, like the people of the promise. But when we finally see him behaving, what do we see? He goes, uh, the men want to rape the angels who come in, right? And he goes, uh, no, don't take them, take my daughters. Is that, 
the kind of behavior that Abraham would have. (laughs) He is behaving like the people of the city. And we see him sitting in the gate. It's all because he's belonging. He thinks he belongs there. And he only escapes because God, because God listens to the intercession of his appointed man, of his man, of Abraham. He listens to that intercession on behalf of Lot and rescues him. All that to say, that's what it means to kind of sit in the gate of the city, to take your seat among the scoffers, that you have moved from thinking about this as a potential way to find happiness to behaving as if you're going to find happiness in, these, in this wicked council, to fully belonging and putting your identity along with uh, that council. Now, clearly, what the Bible is trying to warn us about here is you're not going to find happiness there. Those are the real lies. What was the, the lie that uh, the serpent told to Eve? God's holding out on you. He's got all these trees, and this is the best one. Let me tell you, I've, I've, I've been, through, been up and down the garden. I've seen them all. This is the best one, and he's holding out on you. And if you really want to be happy, take from this tree. Rebel against God. Throw off your shackles. That's what will really make you happy. And we listen to that counsel and plunge the world into sin. So, here's the que- here's a question. Let's take these one at a time. Where is it that you hear these kinds of wicked counsels, these promises that you'll find happiness here? I can't imagine going to college nowadays. I went to Bible college, so even that was really secluded. Uh, going to college in a, in a secular environment, I can't imagine the kinds of things that are being uh, offered and promised to you to find happiness here or there. But I'm sure you're just inundated with it. So think about those things. And it's, it's, maybe it's not obvious that that's what's going on. There was this um, book written, uh, it was called After the Ball, how the homosexual agenda is going to uh, change the minds of the entire West. And it was literally like a manifesto of how are we as, uh, as a group of, homo- of LGBTQ advocates going to uh, transform the minds of this world. Step one, it follows these steps almost verbatim. Step one was subtly infiltrate culture and media. Think, of, think about the, when was the last time you saw a show that did not have a prominent homosexual character? It was probably from like the 90s, right? Like if you were watching some old rerun. Because the, the step one is cause people to sympathize with this lifestyle. To think that's not antithetical to happiness. To think that is, that's okay. And you do that by showing characters in certain ways. And then you move, we've moved not, not just to listening to that counsel, we've seen it everywhere, but then we've kind of, we've begun to behave as if it's okay. So that preachers, when they get up and they say homosexuality is a sin, they have to hedge 
They have to go, well, you know, now hear me out, hear me out. Homosexuals, I love them. I want them to know Christ. I want, but then they, uh, then they go, but I, but I will say it's a sin. You know, if you're a, if you're a, if you're a homosexual and you're a Christian, that's okay. You know, that's like saying, if you're an, if you're an adulterer and you're a Christian, that's okay. Just you're it's, that's OK. Lean right into it. If you're a murderer, if you're a murderer and a Christian, that's OK. You can identify as both. It's OK. And that is the council. That's that is the church is beginning as a whole to behave like that, to behave as if those things are OK. Because we've begun to listen to that kind of counsel and it's real subtle. It'll infiltrate. And you got to watch out for it um, to the point to where you'll be mocked even for saying something like that. Cancel culture and all of that. If you say a woman is a real thing and a man is a real thing in our world today. You could get if you're a public figure, you could get mocked and thrown off the stage and and all of that deplatformed. But. That is how the scoffers handle people that they disagree with. So happiness is, happiness is killed by these three things. The counsel of the, we're listening to the counsel of the wicked, behaving in the way that sinners behave, taking your stand with them and taking a seat with the scoffers. Uh, but it's not just that happiness is... These things are the opposite of happiness. But our happiness gets corrupted. It subtly gets corrupted as we listen to these kinds of things. Um, verse 2 says this. It tells us where, where we can actually find our happiness. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. So instead of listening to wicked counsel, these three things are set in opposition to this one thing. Instead of listening to wicked counsel, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers, this man, here's where you'll find happiness. Your delight will be in the law of the Lord. Now, this law of the Lord, it's a general word for instruction. It's Torah. And it is, when you hear law of the Lord, what do you probably think? Like Ten Commandments. That's where your brain goes. His commands. He's told me what's wrong and what's right. The instruction of the Lord is more broad than that. It is the guidance of the Lord. It's everything he has to teach about himself, about his love, about his care. It's the gospel. It's the good news that he is a God who's not abandoned the world in rebellion against him. Now, that's something you can delight in. And not only is that, but you, del- you begin to delight this happy man. He finds his delight in the fact that Believing that good news and being reborn by the Spirit, he actually begins to find delight in those commands that before, when that before felt so burdensome. You know, I did. I was. I grew up in a little Baptist church, and when I was seven years old, I walked the aisle, walked up the aisle, did the got baptized. You know, not the right way when I like when I was a baby. You know, good Presbyterians, um, but. I did the thing, and you know what I did? I became a perfect, I became a great little Pharisee. 
Because my understanding of the gospel was that it was just law, just commands. I've got to be good. If I'm good, people will praise me. People will think well of me. My delight was in the law of the Lord, but not in all of it. And, my, I mean, so much so to the point, I, you know, I've got two brothers, older brother and younger brother. And my little brother asked my mom one time. Little brothers can get away with this kind of question. She asked, he asked my mom one time, uh, which one of us is, was your favorite? You know, it's like, and of course, my mom, my, if I'm answering that question, I might have been humorous to my daughters and been like, you, you're my favorite all day long, which everyone was asking. But, but, but she says, no, I can't answer that. I can't answer that question. You know I can't. She says, all right, all right, fine. Which one of us was the easiest? Which one of us did, did you have the most, you know, uh, easy time raising? And they're like, without question, my mom, without hesitation, goes, Chad, all day long. Because I thought, because I was convinced that what would give me life and happiness was receiving the praise of others because I was a good kid. That's what I rested my salvation, what I rested my soul in. Until I began to understand that the instruction of Yahweh, his guidance, is more than just a bunch of duties for me to do. And that those duties that he has for me to do, those instructions, they're not designed to be chains. They are, they are bonds, but they are bonds of love, bonds of freedom. You know, if you want to become a great pianist... Freedom is not a, you're free if you have no constraints on you. Where do you find real freedom? Let's say you go to a concert when you're a kid and you see it's this great pianist and he plays beautifully. He flows in and out of the music and you're lifted and transported by what he has to play and, and, and you're captured by it. You're so enthralled by it that you go, I must learn to play the piano like this. I will dedicate my life to this. You can't just go home and go, my delight is in the piano. And so I am going to be a great pianist, right? No. You have to dedicate yourself. You've got to chain yourself to that instrument. You've got to say no to lots of things in your life that you other, they're otherwise good things. And, and you have to sacrifice some freedoms for greater freedoms, for a more glorious freedom. And that's the same way that it functions with the gospel. You are sacrificing certain freedoms to follow the Lord, quote-unquote freedoms. But those freedoms, it's like, it's like if I were to say to my daughters, you are not free to run into traffic. You are not free. My daughters are not free to do that. They are not free to uh, go out and play with a wood chipper. Like, those are things that I, they do not have the freedom to do. And that's not because I hate them. It's because I love them that I restrict their freedom in that way. And so God's instruction, he, the duties that he puts us, that he puts on us, they're not uh, burdensome. And, but we can only begin to see that when he makes us new. And I want to get to that. I want to talk about... This tree. This happy man is like a tree. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. This word planted is really important. The word planted, 
I, for the longest time, when I read this passage, what I thought was, he's like a tree growing by streams of water out in the wilderness. You know, you go out in the wild and you see this like fern gully style, you know, uh, thing. You know, this tree just growing wild in the forest with no restrictions on it. But there's this great rushing river that's feeding it life and it flourishes and grows and it's huge. And that's the kind of tree he's talking about. That is the wrong image. The word here is transplanted. He is like a tree that has been transplanted. He is like a tree that has been removed from its natural environment where it would have died and placed into a new environment by streams of water. And this word streams of water, it's not streams, it's not wild streams. God does not pick us up out of the ground, pluck us up from our miseries and sins, and then plant us by a wild stream. No, everything is meticulously planned. They are irrigation canals. He plants us in a garden. Well thought out, well planned, well planned for the happy man's flourishing, for the happy person's flourishing. This tree... It's not in its natural environment. And that plucking up, if if you'd imagine yourself as the tree, you think you're doing just fine. I'm doing just fine out here in the desert or whatever, some desert shrub. I think I'm doing just fine. And then this guy comes along and rips me up by the roots and goes and takes me into a garden, goes and takes me and plants me in a foreign environment. If I were a tree, I would think this would be not a pleasant experience. But his purpose in it is to provide consistent, real life for the plant, for the tree. And that is why the happy man is like a tree who is planted, transplanted by streams, by, by irrigation canals. It's not as poetically beautiful, right? <laughs> it's like, it's like you, you can't, he's, tra- he's been transplanted He's like a tree transplanted by irrigation canals. Irrigation canals does not have that, uh, that romantic ring to it. So you'll never see that in a translation probably. But that's the idea, that he is intentionally making sure that life can flow into these plants, into his trees. And it flows in by the Spirit of God. Water, symbolically, throughout the Old Testament is linked with God's spirit, his life-giving spirit. So there's two things in this passage that tell us where do you find happiness, where do you find life, where do you find the real good life that God wants you to have? You find it by meditating on and delighting in his word and experiencing the life-giving presence of his spirit. So, what is this... One more thing, meditation. Um, it's not enough to just sit down. And, and uh, my brother who you know, talked earlier, like your devotional time, uh, you know, when you, when you first become a believer, devo- every, this is across the board. This is, this is what everybody does. You treat the Bible like it's a magic book, right? You take it and you open it up and you, like it's a fortune cookie. You open it up and you read a passage and you go, oh man, that's really encouraging or that's really good or I have no idea what that means. See you tomorrow. Right. And that's, a, that's a good to get in the discipline, good to get in the habit. But that's not meditating. 
on the, on the instruction of the Lord. Meditating is this word. You guys know what an onomatopoeia is? Anybody give me an example of an onomatopoeia? Boom! <laughs> Slap, smack, whack. You know, all the things that Batman does to, in, in the old school 60s Batman. My references are super old. Um, the word in Hebrew for meditate is an onomatopoeia. It's uh, haga. And it sounds like the sort of sound you would make uh, when you're enjoying a meal. Like, that's kind of the idea. There's, uh, you know, ridiculous, right? Uh, the the one other one other place that is used in Jeremiah it, it, it uh, that it, where it's not meditate is that the lion growls over his prey. You guys seen like the nature documentary videos, right? You've seen those nature videos where you've got a lion eating a zebra. It, the lion is super enjoying his meal, right? He's not just there going like, mm, I'll have a sousant of this, and you know he's he's not picky. He is feasting. He's, he's devouring and he's growling. He's going, it's, it, the idea is that when you sit down to your favorite meal, this meal that you, and you're hungry, you find yourself hungry and you sit down to your favorite meal and you take that first bite and you cannot help but go, mmm. Right? He says that is the kind of relationship you need to have with this book. That is the kind of relationship you need to have with God's instruction in order for it to transform you, in order for it to go down deep into you at the levels where it will make you this happy man, this happy person, like a planted by a stream. Because it is, where it is in God's word that we find our deepest needs satisfied. And we find that if we find them secured and guaranteed, belonging, honor, uh, food, security, you know, there's verse upon verse. Jesus says, you know, don't, don't look to the, uh, don't worry about what you're going to eat. The, the birds don't worry about what they're going to eat and your father feeds them and you're more valuable than birds. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. The flowers of the field are clothed in more glory than Solomon. And you think you're, you think your father's like, I made the world for flowers. That's ridiculous. He knows you need these things. And so seek him first. And he'll make sure that you don't... Now, does that, that mean every, no Christian ever starved to death? Is that what that means? No. But when those Christians who starved to death and died opened their eyes in glory, they felt a satisfaction of hungers in ways that were more deep than they ever felt from the biggest and fanciest meal you could imagine. God promises himself to you. So, as the source of this ultimate happiness. He's like a tree planted by irrigation canals. As you meditate on God's word, we experience this life and transformation. The wicked are not so, verse 4 but are like chaff that the wind drives away. 
They're not rooted. They have no life. They have no way of... They're already dead. A puff of wind will blow them away. The mockers and the scoffers may seem really secure. They may seem really happy now. But blessed are those who mourn now, for they will rejoice later. And cursed are those, Jesus said, who laugh now, who mock now. Because the mocking, they think they're prospering now. They think they're successful now. If, they, if you think that you can have, that you can satisfy all your needs in yourself, you're going to be sorely disappointed. They're like, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Because they have no roots, because they have nothing sustaining them, they cannot stand in the judgment. There is a judgment coming. Every sin will be laid bare. And every sin will be judged. Every one of yours on a day of of judgment will fall under the wrath of God. Now, there's two ways that your sin can be judged. It can be judged 2,000 years ago on a cross in the Middle East outside Jerusalem. And the judgment fell, and God won't judge it twice. Or you can bear that; ju- you can carry that judgment yourself. Now, Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ, He became like chaff, so that we might be transplanted by those irrigation canals. He became; He He suffered the perishing of the wicked. He suffered the day of judgment so that we might be able to stand up in the judgment. He suffered great misery and sorrow. And we're going to talk about this next week because we're going to be talking about grief and sorrow. And he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was was acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows. But whose sorrows were they? They weren't his own. They were ours. He became like chaff so that we might be planted as trees, removed from our state of sin and misery and brought, delivered into a state of salvation and deliverance and experience the life of God flowing into us. And how do we know this? Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The kind of man who never listens to wicked counsel, the kind of person who has never stood in the way of sinners, has never stopped and thought for a second, That sounds like good advice. I think I could really find happiness there. The man who has never scoffed and never mocked, but was completely sincere. That's a perfect man. And there's only been one. He knows the way of the righteous because he is the way of the righteous. And if you're in him, you've got nothing to fear in the judgment. And you can find life and happiness now. In him, even if the world falls apart around you, even if everything you love is lost, if he is your delight, if he is your greatest joy, there's nothing you can lose that can touch your happiness. You can have an unassailable happiness. Who's going to destroy him? Your life is hidden 
if your life and your happiness are hidden with Christ in God? Who can assail that mountain? Who can climb that hill and take it from you? I'll end with this. John Chrysostom, I love this story. He was a Christian preacher uh, in, the, in the ancient church. And uh, he went before a, an empress who wanted to put him to death and exile him for preaching the gospel. Right? And he goes and the empress says to him, you know, don't you know? He says, he goes and he just preaches the gospel to her. He's not scared. He's not worried. And she says, don't you know that I can send you into exile? Why are you so, why are you so confident? Why are you so happy? You're, at, you're not acting serious enough in the presence of my great power. Don't you know I can send you into exile? He says, I'm a citizen of heaven. This world, it belongs to my father. There's no place in this world you can send me that doesn't belong to him. No, so no, you can't send me into exile. She gets frustrated. Don't you know that I can have you, I can, I can have you beaten. I can have you tortured. I can have your body destroyed. And he says, well, you know, all our bodies are going to perish, but mine, mine is going to be raised from the dead. Uh, so no, you can't really touch my body. You can't really do anything to it that my, that my Jesus won't fix. And she's frustrated even more. And she says, don't you know that I can take your life? I can take your very life from you. And he just laughs. He laughs in the face of this empress. And, this is, and just goes, my life is hidden with Christ in God. Are you going to take it from me? Or you can't touch it. Here's this man laughing with great joy at his trial where an empress, the most powerful person in the world, is threatening to have him executed. That kind of unassailable happiness is yours. You are the heir of that if you belong to Jesus. It's going to look foolish. It's going to look crazy. People are going to think you are absolutely nuts to be happy in the world the way it is. Peter says, People are going to be baffled by a hope that's in you by the resurrection. They're going to be baffled by it. And they're going to ask you, what is wrong with you? And he says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you. Be ready to tell them where your happiness lies and why it can't be assailed and touched by the things that seem so easily to destroy the happiness of those who are given these wicked counsels, saying, come stand in this way, asking and mocking saying, come and sit with us. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you that you made us, that happiness and holiness are not opposites. They're two, two ways of talking about the same thing in reality. For the, ho- the holiest being is the happiest being. And by finding holiness, by finding You, we find our happiness. Help us to trust that our lives are hidden in Christ, hidden with Christ in you, Father, that nothing can touch it. Help us to place our greatest delight, our greatest joy in you and to to see, not to discount all the great good gifts that you've given us, Lord, but to see them as means to enjoying you and not the ends that we would pursue. Help us to enjoy the good things that you have given us, but 
but to reject any happiness that's unmixed with you. I ask these things through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. 